Welcome to the Vanguard Bible Church Podcast. The current sermon series is titled Prime. For more information about Vanguard Bible Church, please visit our website at www.vanguardbible.org or come worship with us on Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. at Freedom Middle School in Northwest Bakersfield. We hope you enjoy today's message. Before age 21, Frank had done more in his life, seen more of the world, and committed more crime than most people do in their entire life. At age 16, he left home, supported, and he supported himself by bouncing checks. When he realized he could cash more checks for larger amounts if he looked like a respectable professional, this bold lad conned Pan American Airlines into giving him a pilot's uniform. He then persuaded 3M to make him a Pan American pilot's badge and a fake FAA license. This allowed him to catch free Pan American Airlines flights all over the world, riding deadhead, and to cash bad checks all over the world at various banks where he had accounts. When police started to close in on Frank, he changed identities again and became an out-of-town doctor in a Georgia hospital. He was hired to supervise interns. When he realized his lack of medical training could endanger real lives, he moved to Louisiana where he posed as a Harvard-trained lawyer. Despite never attending law school, he passed the bar exam in Louisiana on his third try. This crafty juvenile was eventually arrested in France at the age of 21. He served just five years in prison and now helps federal authorities catch other cons like himself. His name is Frank Abagnale. Abagnale ranks as one of the most infamous con men of all time. On nearly every con man list, uh, he is near the top. A movie based on his autobiography was released in 2002 called Catch Me If You Can starring Leonardo DiCaprio and Tom Hanks. Professional con artists like Frank Abagnale eventually get caught because they cannot escape a universal truth. And that is, you cannot maintain two compartmentalized lives forever because eventually one will expose the other. This is the Apostle Paul's concern in the passage we'll be studying today. We're continuing our series in Colossians called Prime. I want to invite you to open up your copy of God's Word with me to Colossians chapter 3. And to take out the sermon notes in your worship folder that you received this morning. Our theme verse for this series in Colossians uh, emphasizes the theme of Jesus first in all things. Uh, it's Colossians 1.18. Let's say it out loud together. And he is the head of the body... The church, he is the beginning, the firstborn of the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. The Apostle Paul has been telling us both directly and indirectly for the last several weeks in this letter that putting Jesus anything else than first in our lives is essentially putting him last. And to use the language of both Jesus and the apostles, he didn't save us so that he could be last. He saved us, among other reasons, so that he could finally be first. Because us putting him last or not wanting him in our lives is what got us in trouble in the first place with the Lord. 
Sadly, one of the places Jesus can take a back seat is in the home. Perhaps this is because it's easy to segregate our public life from our private life, but the Lord doesn't see it that way. He sees both our public and private life as one. Thus, our big idea for today is this. Your personal faith in Christ should shape your private life at home. Your personal faith in Christ should shape your private life at home. When individuals on any team or organization get outside of their designated roles, chaos and disunity and conflict usually ensue. Like oil in an engine, role definition enables teams or an organization to run smoothly. Knowing this, Paul answers a few questions in the three verses we're going to be looking at this morning, or four verses, excuse me. First of all, what is the role of the Christian wife in the home? Then he answers the question, what's the role of the Christian husband? And just so they won't feel left out, he even addresses children too. What's the role of of the child growing up in a Christian home? Now, because Jesus is supreme, sufficient, and superior, as Paul taught in chapter 1, he deserves to have first place, thus the title of the series, Prime. He wants first place in our lives, including the home. So in the remaining verses in chapter 3 here, Paul talks about how we should integrate our faith at home, into every areas of our every every area of our lives, excuse me. And next week we'll look at how we should integrate our faith at work. So that we have one life we're living for Christ as opposed to a half life and another life without him. Follow along with me if you would. Colossians 3, starting with verse 18, Paul says, Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives. And do not be harsh with them. Here's the first point on your outline, the first truth that Paul is telling us. In Jesus' first homes, wives willingly submit to their husbands. In Jesus' first homes, homes that are Christ-centered, where Jesus is Lord, his word has the final authority, wives willingly submit to their husbands. Now, let me give you a little bit of background here on these verses. Many scholars call this Paul's household code. He has a couple places in his letters where he did this, where he gave instructions on what the Christian home should look like. What many in the women's liberation movement of the 20th century do not know is that the New Testament teaching on marriage actually elevated women from the second-class citizen role they were confined to in the Roman Empire. Paul's command in verse 19 that husbands love their wives was so radical at the time because Roman culture allowed men to basically treat their wives just slightly better than the slaves they had at home. Some commentators believe that Paul wrote this household code in response to some women using their newfound freedom in the gospel to cause conflict in the home. 
The Apostle Paul obviously didn't want this happening because many government leaders at the time were already worried and anxious and nervous Nellies about Christianity causing insurrection or upsetting the social order. Now, although I think there's some merit to this motivation that scholars have speculated on, Paul's teaching on marriage is still inspired by the Holy Spirit. It's consistent with other New Testament passages like Ephesians 5, Titus 2, and 1 Peter 3, and thus it's still authoritative. So what is this? What does it mean, wives, submit to your husband? A submit comes from the Greek word hupotasso. It means to subject oneself or to obey or to yield. It was used in the military to describe soldiers getting in line or falling into rank. However, in this context, uh, it refers to a wife's willingness to come under her husband's God-ordained leadership in order to please the Lord. Now, although authority and submission have become offensive words in our culture today, they are necessary for the order that we enjoy in society. I mean, can you imagine what it would be like tomorrow driving to work with no traffic laws and no police to enforce them? It would be utter chaos. Or maybe going home this afternoon and watching an NFL game where there were no officials and each team could just do whatever they wanted. They could make up their own rules, call their own fouls. Obviously, it would be chaos as well. Well, in a similar fashion, the Lord does not want the Christian home to be chaotic and he does not want there to be unnecessary conflict. And so, because he's a God of order, he has given distinct roles for mothers and fathers and children. He wants someone to be accountable to him for what happens in the home, and he wants someone to have the final say when there is disagreement. So what does it mean to, to submit? I mean, hupotasso, uh, the Greek, and all that, it kind of helps, but... Here's a definition I've been working on for a few years as I've studied this topic throughout the scriptures. Uh, I think biblical submission, not only in the home, but in the workplace and uh, in government, for example, Romans 13 talks about submitting to civil authorities. This definition applies in all those contexts. It's, I think it's joyfully yielding to and learning from God-ordained authority after respectfully disagreeing. It's joyfully yielding to and learning from God-ordained authority after respectfully disagreeing. Now why joyfully yielding? What, what do I mean there? Well, I, I chose these two words because I think they capture what the rest of the scriptures teach about God's sovereignty over authorities. And even when we don't get our way, we can trust that the Lord will get his way and he will use our yielding for good. And what, I mean, what do I mean by learning from? Well, because learning from also recognizes God's sovereign hand in choosing the authority he puts over us. And since the Lord's always teaching us something, always working in our lives to make us more like Christ, I think that he, it's a reminder that he uses authorities to accomplish his will through them and to teach us more about himself and to make us more like Christ. Thus, we can trust that he'll teach us through authorities that he puts in our lives. 
And then respectfully disagreeing, what does that mean? Well, the Lord does not want us sinning when we don't get our way. He doesn't want us to, uh, say for example, when we uh, respectfully disagree with a police officer who's writing us a ticket, he doesn't want us to then punch the police officer or, or to call him bad names or something like that. Uh, he doesn't want us to manipulate or complain or to pout when we didn't get our way because it reflects a distrust of him. Disagreeing respectfully also preserves the relationship, especially between husband and wife, so that the next time the wife disagrees, the husband will be more willing to hear from her. So, notice in verse 18, Paul says, as is fitting in the Lord. It means it's proper, it's, it's appropriate, it's becoming of a godly woman to respect her husband. One day, a brother and sister were arguing so much that it began to escalate into a fight. Just then, the mother came into the room and demanded that they stop, and the sister explained, don't worry, mother, we're not fighting. We're just pretending we are married. You know, I've noticed in my 20 or so years of full-time ministry and the numerous couples that I've done marriage counseling with, a theme that I have observed is that over half of them that were in major conflict had the conflict resolved when they learned what their roles were in marriage. Uh, when, I, when I ended up having to start with a plan to work with them over six, eight weeks, it it ended up being they didn't know what their role was. And when they got into their role slotted properly, it was amazing to see what the Lord did in their marriage, the healing, the reconciliation, and the intimacy that was built. So how do we, how do we apply this? I mean, can we, is there anything we can glean out of this direct application? I mean, Paul says, wives, submit to your husbands. Well, here's one I thought of. Wives, accept your husband as God's best for you. You see, because God is sovereign and he even works through our decisions, our own decisions, you could trust that your husband was chosen for you and for your good. Thus, his strengths, his weaknesses, his sin struggles, likes, dislikes, are all intricately designed to complement your own strengths and weaknesses and sin struggles and likes and dislikes. So be careful, ladies, that... You don't use the weaknesses you perceive in your husband as an excuse not to submit to him, not to respect him. The Lord doesn't grant such an exemption. The only exemption that the Lord grants in other scriptures is if your husband asks you to sin, you are able to opt out and say, no, I'm not going to do that. It violates God's word. My, from my experience, again, working with couples, I find that most arguments or conflicts regarding headship and submission don't have anything to do with sin or Bible verses. It's usually over preferences. So thus, ladies, your submission says more about your theology and spiritual maturity than it does your husband. Because when you're able to respectfully submit to him, it proves that you believe what God's word says about marriage, sovereignty, and authority. So in the context of Colossians 3, uh, since we, we looked last week at how we can change by putting off and putting on, 
How, how else can we apply this? Well, ladies, by putting off the protesting over preferences from the old self and putting on the trusting submission of the new self. Your personal faith in Christ should shape your private life at home. Here's number two on your outline. In Jesus' first homes, husbands sacrificially love their wives. Husbands sacrificially love their wives. Paul says, husbands love your wives. Now, his choice of word here is revolutionary for at least two reasons. First, he uses the Greek word agape, which I'm sure many of you have heard of. It refers to the kind of sacrificial, self-giving love that Jesus modeled. But this is exceptional because most of the ancient texts in Paul's time use the word eros for sexual love to describe the relationship between husband and wife. The second reason this is revolutionary, that Paul would say agape, uh, love your wives, is the fact that it was common to see submission required from wives in Greek and Hebrew and other pagan ancient texts back then. However, it was unheard of for ancient texts from the Greeks or the Hebrews or other pagan religions to command husbands to love their wives. In essence, meaning Christianity was the first religion to come along that required that. In fact, no other household code from the ancient world in Paul's time or before required husbands to love their wives. So why did Paul write this command, wives submit to your husbands, and why did he tell husbands to love? Probably, my guess, is because inspired by the Holy Spirit, he wanted to address the particular temptation each spouse would struggle with. Wives would be tempted to rebel against their husband's leadership, and husbands would be tempted to abuse their leadership role. I read a quote this week from a, an unknown author as I was preparing for the, this message and researching and studying. Uh, the quote says this, if a man has enough sense to treat his wife like a thoroughbred, she will never turn into an old nag. Get that old nag, it's an old horse and poor health, okay. I didn't get that at first, I had to look it up, honestly. Not being a farm boy or anything. So, perhaps this is why Paul also added in verse 19, be not harsh with them. The apostle uses a word in the original text that, that means to make bitter or to ingest, ingest something in the stomach that produces a bitter taste. Instead of husbands using their authority to be domineering and selfish, he wanted them to be loving and unselfish. So, husbands, how do we apply this? I think a deeper way to apply this would be husbands submit to Jesus' lordship in all things. And what I have found from personal experience and also working with husbands over the years is that men who do this, if they submit to Jesus, it takes care of a lot of problems. If you have a growing walk with the Lord, not only will you have the spiritual power you need to love your wife sacrificially, and you'll need spiritual power to do it, she will also be more likely to submit to you because you are submitting to Jesus. There's no shortcut to this. 
It can only happen by spending time in God's word and in prayer throughout the week, in the morning, before you go to work, making time for the Lord, and then applying what you've learned. And then through that, over time, the Lord changing your heart and growing you, and you getting closer to him and closer to him and becoming more like him. So in the context of Colossians 3 and what we learned last week with the put-off, put-on concept and how we change, how do we apply this? Well, by doing what we learned, husbands put off the selfishness of the old self and put on the unselfish, unconditional love of the new self. If you'd like to learn more about the role of husband and wife in marriage, you can check out the Extreme Marriage Makeover series I preached in 2016. It's still on our website, and I think it's still on podcast. I gave an entire message on the role of the wife and then an entire message on the role of the husband, so there's a more thorough treatment on both roles. Your personal faith in Christ should affect your private life or shape your private life at home. Next, if you would, let's look at Verses 20 and 21, now he zeroes in on children. Paul says, children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. And fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. So here's number three, the third point on your outline. In Jesus' first homes, where Jesus is Lord, where he's on the throne, and his word is the final authority, children respectfully obey their parents. Notice the scope, children, of this obedience. It says, in everything. Well, does that mean I have to obey my parents by the way they want my chores done? Yes. Does that mean, what about my smartphone? Do I have to obey when it comes to my smartphone and get off it when they tell me to get off of it? Yes, yes, you do. But why? Does it sound like I parent teenagers? Why? Here's why, because Paul says it pleases the Lord. It pleases the Lord. I think there's a dual implication here. For parents, it means that if your children don't obey you, God has your back. And for children, it means if you don't obey your parents, you are messing with the Lord. So thus the inverse is true. When children disobey their parents, It does not please the Lord. Disobedient children forfeit the blessings God has promised to the ones that do obey. Proverbs has a lot to say about this. I I preached two messages last summer on parenting in my Proverbs series. You can check that out online if you want. There are some things, though. There are two things. This is letter A and B in your outline. There are two things I think parents can do to make it easier for their child to obey. Uh, These are two things that Maya and I have found to be helpful. Parents can make this easier by, A, setting clear expectations. Um, In Deuteronomy chapter 28, the Lord parents the people of Israel by setting clear expectations and consequences. He, in essence, says, if you obey, I'll bless you. And then he lists blessings. And then he says, but if if you do not obey me, I'll curse you. And the Lord lists several consequences. A common mistake that I see a lot of parents make is not communicating what they expect their children to do. And then when the child doesn't meet the uncommunicated expectation, the child gets a consequence and they're kind of like, what did I do? I didn't know that was wrong. And so 
Uh, for example, if you want your child to use good manners at a public restaurant, start by teaching them good manners at home. We, I've, this is a common one, so I'm using this example. I've seen this very often, um, where basically parents will just allow their kid to do whatever at dinner time at home, but then when they go out to dinner and they're in public, they want the child to be really well-behaved and self-controlled. Like they're supposed to all of a sudden learn it. And so um, we, we noticed this uh, when we started having children and we kind of, with the Lord's help, he helped us see that and we went, man, we, gotta, we, gotta, we cannot do that. We gotta, we gotta figure out how to prevent that from happening. Um, and so we, we came up with a little motto. We practice our manners in private so we can bless others in public. And we've just repeated that through the years. So we try to teach our kids at home to practice their manners so it becomes a habit at home. So when we're out in public, we just have to remind them, hey, let's, do, let's remember to use our manners just like we do at home. So we're not going to get up and run around the table and chase each other playing duck, duck, goose. We're not going to throw food. We're not going to kick each other under the table. We're going to chew with our mouth closed. We're going to hold our utensils properly and things like that. The prerequisite to clarity is directness. For example, if you say, why don't you go clean your room to your child? A child with the inherited sin nature they got from you is going to hear that and go, oh, it's an option. <laughs> eh, I don't want to go clean my room right now. Instead, say, would you please go clean your room? Uh, the former makes it sound more like a suggestion or an option, whereas the latter makes it more of a directive. In other words, parents, you need to decide whether you're giving your child an option or whether you're giving them a directive that they need to obey. So just be aware and think about how you're communicating to your child. If they're not obeying, ask yourself, have I taught them to obey? Have I, did I communicate my expectations to them? And if you did, letter B kicks in then practice consistent discipline. Practice consistent discipline. Just as the Lord disciplines his own people for disobedience, parents need to provide consistent loving discipline for their children. Consequences discourage us from repeating behaviors. Loving discipline instructs, it sets boundaries, it instills a respect for authority. Interestingly, children who learn to respect authority in the home, generally grow up to be adults that respect authority in the world. This is why it's important for parents to keep their word by following through with consequences. So uh, if you are a parent that threatens and threatens and threatens and never follows through, you'll probably see your child call your bluff. So make sure you're consistent and you follow through. Next, Paul says in verse 21, fathers do not provoke your children. The Greek word he uses here for fathers can sometimes refer to both parents, but given the culture at the time, the apostle probably had the father in mind because it was common back then for the father to be the primary disciplinarian. The word in the original language for provoke means to exacerbate, embitter, or to... to um, to be harsh in such a way to stir them up to anger. Now, let me clarify something. I have found that parents who struggle with people-pleasing or wanting their children to like them sometimes take verses like this and go, oh man, if, if my child's ever upset, I have, I've embittered them or provoked them. 
That's not what Paul is saying here. Those of us that have raised children, you know that your children will get angry and upset and cry and scream sometimes when you discipline them or you deny them something that they want. That's normal. Instead, what Paul is referring to here is a harsh style of parenting that's abusive, unfair, and unreasonable. Uh, For example, kids become embittered if their parents embarrass them in public. Or they allow sibling rivalry to go unchecked or never apologize when they're wrong. That can cause kids to become embittered. So, application. Well, here's one for the kids. First time in a long time we've had one for kids. So if you're here, kids, write this down because mom and dad are going to ask you five times later today about this. Children, trust the Lord with the parents he gave you. Trust the Lord with the parents he gave you. Again, because God is sovereign, he ordained that you would be born into the specific family at a specific time. All we need to do is look at the Christmas story and Jesus and the genealogy in Matthew chapter 1, and then we look at Luke chapter 2. Perfect example of how the Lord is able to sovereignly move governments and the whole world to make sure somebody's born at the right time, at the right place, with the right last name. So thus he handpicked your parents with all their strengths and weaknesses, sin struggles, likes, dislikes, experiences. So learn from them. See the best in them. See how much they love you. Be thankful for them, children. No adult has looked back on their childhood with regret that they obeyed their parents. But plenty of adults that were rebellious as kids wish they hadn't been. It's funny how growing up and becoming a parent changes your perspective. I've been in this habit the last few years every Mother's Day when I call my mom saying, I'm sorry. Why? Sorry for all the things I did. I get it now. You were right. That one time in 1986, you were right. And then in 1988, you were right again. I'm sorry. Thank you for loving me. I was wrong. So how do we apply this in the context of Colossians 3 and what we learned last week from putting off and putting on? Well, children, put off prideful rebellion and put on the garment of humble obedience of the new self. Well, your personal faith in Christ should shape your private life at home. Would you join me as we close in prayer? Heavenly Father, I realize, and you do too, that a passage that talks about these issues can stir up painful memories and emotions. So Lord, I just want to pray for wives that struggle with submitting maybe because it wasn't modeled for them, maybe because they've been hurt. Lord, please would you provide healing, but also would you help them to see how you are able to redeem the hurt for good? Would you help them to see your sovereign hand at work in their lives? Father, for our husbands, would you please 
enable our husbands by your grace and by your spirit as they take steps to walk with you. Would you help our husbands to lead spiritually, to love as Christ would love, to set an example for their families of what it means to follow Christ. And Lord, if there's conflict in the marriages that's unresolved, the marriages that are represented here today, please, Father, would you help, help husband and wife to resolve those conflicts and to fall into their proper roles, to transact forgiveness and repentance, and to commit to honoring you. Lord, for children that are here that are having difficulty respecting their parents, show them, Lord, if they're being critical and dwelling on their parents' weaknesses, using that as an excuse not to obey. Or maybe if they're comparing their, their life to another child's freedom, wishing that they could do what their friend does at school, and Lord, please show them the foolishness in that thinking. Lord, would you give wisdom to the parents on how to love and discipline and set boundaries and give them the grace they need when their parenting is difficult, when it's challenging. Father, would you work in our homes so that our homes would bring glory to you so that our church would be strong because Christ is on the throne in the homes of Vanguard. And Lord, please, would you do this in such a way that the outside world would see the marriages and the parenting, the kids, and what's happening in the home, and they would say, man, what is it that's different? What is it you've got? That's our desire, Lord. We love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Again, we hope you've enjoyed listening to the Vanguard Bible Church podcast by Pastor Kerry Knack. For more information about Vanguard Bible Church, please visit our website at www.vanguardbible.org. Have a great week and we hope to see you at Vanguard Bible Church.